Hello and welcome to another episode of the Daily Remedy Podcast. Today we're here with Ms. Kristen Ogden, a patient advocate who is speaking on behalf of Dr. Bakoff. And with that, I'd like to introduce Kristen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate an opportunity to talk about what we're experiencing right now. So in that vein, let's jump right into it. Can you provide as much context around what's transpiring with Dr. Bakoff, particularly the criminal case and what you as a patient advocate are doing to advocate for him legally? Well, I'm advocating for him in the sense that when we began our legal effort, and I say we because it involves a group of his patients, we decided to get together and hire an attorney if we could find one and try to involve ourselves in the process. Dr. Bakoff is a fine doctor. He is a person who practices pain care and has for about 20 years. He practices in Beverly Hills, California. He is an internist with many more years experience prior to beginning to focus on pain, but he is a pain specialist. On November 1st, with really no warning, the representatives of the DEA showed up in his office and delivered to him a document called an immediate suspension order. And that document required him to, that moment, cease and desist, no longer prescribe any controlled substances for his patients. This left a lot of patients in the lurch. I will tell you that quite a few of his patients, certainly not all of them, but a number of them have come over to be his patients in the last several years as other doctors have been put out of practice by DEA action. And so he has a cadre of patients who've been with him a long time. He also has a cohort of patients who, many of them were patients of Dr. Forrest Tennant at one time, who retired in 2018 after some visits from the DEA, you might say, although he was never charged with anything. Dr. Tennant specialized in treating patients who had failed all other efforts at care, all treatments, all modalities, non-opioid pain medications, and even opioid pain medications in some cases. Dr. Tennant was the go-to guy, and so many of the patients that Dr. Bakov has who are now involved in this are former patients of Dr. Tennant who, many of them, are on high doses of opioids. And we have come to understand very clearly that the DEA disapproves of that. And unfortunately, we have a lot of people who are uh, really hanging out at this moment in time. The document required Dr. Bakov to stop immediately and gave him no opportunity to write one more prescription for each patient, to try to assist them finding another doctor, or to begin tapering their medicate off their medications if that was the only option that appeared to be available. And we find that reprehensible. It's like the DEA required him to stop, and in effect, the DEA caused the abandonment of some 240 patients. It's very interesting because often in the news and other outlets, we hear stories of these greedy physicians or criminal-minded physicians and patients who are either drug-seeking or inappropriately using the medications. And so that's the narrative that forms. But that's clearly not the case here. Here you have a physician who is using clinical intervention in an appropriate manner to help patients with medical conditions that required certain opioids and at certain doses. Why is it that the DEA can't understand the clinical relationship between physician and patient and the need for patients like you and your supporters 
just seems as though they're trying to intervene without just cause. Can you talk a little bit about that? I would certainly agree with you, and I believe strongly that they are intervening without just cause. Their suspension order claims that for Dr. Bakoff to have continued to hold invalid registration to prescribe controlled drugs constitutes, and I quote here, an immediate danger to the public health or safety. We believe there was no danger to anyone until the DEA's action caused these very ill patients to be suddenly cut off from their medications. We believe, unfortunately, that the DEA simply doesn't, the people in the DEA, I can't say every individual, but the prevailing point of view in this agency is that none of these patients are legitimate, that they are addicts or they are criminals. And frankly, in the, I will say that in the search warrant issued around Dr. Tennant's engagement with the DEA some years ago, it was clear from what was written in the search warrant that the expert reviewer physician didn't believe the patients were legitimate and basically painted all of us with a brush. And I'm not a patient, I'm a spouse, I'm a family member, and I started the advocacy group about 10 years ago. But the search warrant clearly says that these patients couldn't possibly benefit from the doses of medications they are taking, especially those who travel from long distances to see this doctor. He was world-renowned. Yes, people came from long distances, and he cared for them. But they clearly said, search warrant clearly said, that these patients who have high doses and come a long way are almost certainly engaged in drug diversion or drug trafficking. That's interesting. Now, just based on the dose alone, patients are characterized to be of a certain manner or characterized with a certain degree of criminality. It seems odd for the person who may not be familiar with what's going on with chronic pain patients, but talk a little bit about what happens when the many diverse chronic pain patients are, as you said, painted with this broad stroke. What does that do to a pain patient? Well, it does many things. It causes them great harm and puts severely ill patients who are without any kind of remaining supply of their medication at risk of very sudden extreme withdrawal symptoms. And there are significant symptoms associated with undertreated, very severe constant pain, which is what these people have, to include high blood pressure and ultimately stroke or death from a heart attack. These people have, some of them, been put at risk of death. And it's just, there's no basis for it. It's unacceptable. I could talk on, but I'll let you, I'll go back to you. Well, thank you. Let's play devil's advocate for a moment, and pun intended, if you will. Why is the DEA doing this? That's hard to figure out, except that they seem to be a misguided agency. I'll tell you that I am a retired federal public servant. I worked for the federal government, not in law enforcement, in a totally different capacity for 36 years. But that gives you a pretty good understanding of how federal agencies are formed and how they figure out what they're supposed to do, how they get their funding, et cetera, et cetera. From my point of view, I have long felt that the DEA is an agency that has overstepped their original charter and taken on a overzealous pursuit of these doctors and these patients. I don't think personally, and again, these are my beliefs, I don't think that the DEA has any meaningful oversight from the Department of Justice or the Congress. One reason may be that the Controlled Substances Act gave them the power 
to seize assets without proof or evidence or without due process. So they can go into a doctor's office or home and take his or her money and cars and whatever you got. So they don't have to have a funding line for their entire operation. I may, they may have funding from the regular accounts for some things, but much of what they do is paid for by what they seize. Now, I don't get that. It doesn't make yeah, sense to me from an, the point of view of an experienced government manager. And what you're referring to for the audience is a civil asset forfeiture, which is a common tactic that the DEA uses. And the annual budget for the DEA is actually underfunded. So much of the DEA solvency depends on reaching certain financial milestones with the civil asset forfeiture. Thank uh, you for the help. Kristen, no worries. Kristen, let me ask the question that always comes into the minds of the skeptical public that may not understand the truth beyond these prevailing narratives and I'll be a bit speculative. The doctor must have done something. The DEA must have had some just cause. That's always the refrain you hear in the back of people's minds when you're explaining the reality of the injustices that are taking place. Can you talk a little bit about why that's not true and why this narrative keeps popping up in people's minds? Well, I guess it keeps popping up in the minds of the DEA because it makes it possible for them to go after these people they object to. Yeah. But I've never found, and I'm not aware of any evidence ever surfacing of any wrongdoing by Dr. Forrest Tennant, and I don't believe there's any wrongdoing by Dr. Bokoff. But to clarify, and sorry to interrupt, no overdoses, no medications in exchange for illicit favor. No. I think, the, and the only thing that we have seen in the text of the subpoena um, had to do with what was alleged to be inadequate record keeping or prescriptions that weren't sufficiently clear they were clear to me i had to read some of them maybe the dea yeah, it, it's needs to go to school and learn <laughs> it's interesting how civil matters quickly turn into criminal matters when the dea is involved let's talk about your motion to intervene and what you hope to accomplish by inserting your patient advocacy group into this legal matter because it's truly unprecedented that a patient advocacy group would side with the physician in this type of a case and I think that it's very important for the public to understand what you're doing. Thank you. You're quite right about that. Our attorney and some of the members of the group have actually done the research to try to find other case examples and we couldn't find any. If there is a precedent for what we're doing, we'd be glad to know about that. Uh, in this case, our motion to intervene was filed with the DEA Administrative Law Court, an internal judicial system to the agency, which if you think about that a little bit, that raises eyebrows to start with. Okay, everybody involved is employee of the DEA, except the doctor. Yeah. What we seek to do, the motion was filed with the DEA court over the civil matter that has to do, that's been presented to date, that has to do with inadequate prescription writing, allegations that prescriptions for five patients were improper. What our attorney suggested is that we could file a motion to intervene. There is legal pre precedent for doing that. And what that means is that we as a group and we have lots of members, but there are only 11 patients whose names are on the legal paperwork because we had a tight deadline and we're trying to get certain information together that we could turn into the court. 
there are many more patients who would like to have had their name on the matter. Yeah. The motion to intervene is seeking for us to be acknowledged by the court as people who have sufficient interest in the outcome to be warranted to <coughs> recognized and participate. And <coughs> if our motion had been or can be approved, our attorney would be able, and this is what we seek, to have access to all the documents filed and to participate in any hearing, pre-conference, meeting, anything like that, so that our attorney would have the full opportunity to speak up on our behalf. That's amazing, and that really puts into context when the DEA claims what they're doing is in the public interest, <coughs> and the public here is now siding against the DEA. It puts the DEA and the Department of Justice in a very unique legal position. I have two questions. One, where did you develop the legal insight to create this motion? And then two, what obstacles did you encounter in the process of submitting this motion? The legal insight came from our attorney, and I will mention him by name. His name is John P. Flannery. Um, JohnPFlannery.com is his website. He is a very good lawyer. And your viewers may have seen him talking on yeah. CNN or MSNBC. He's a frequent guest on Talking Head Shows. He's the attorney who comes on and talks about all things legal, wearing a bow tie. He's a bow tie guy. But uh, I'll tell you, he is one smart cookie, and we don't believe there's a better lawyer for what we're trying to do anywhere. So he brings the knowledge to us. One thing I like about his manner of interacting is I'm the designated point person for our group. I initiated the effort to contact him, and my name is on the contract that we signed with his firm. So he calls me. When we have something that, when things are moving, of course there's a lot of downtime, but when things are moving, he's on the phone to me frequently, wanting me and my husband to look at things that he drafts. We have a lot of interaction with him. Yes, we have certainly had some obstacles. When we filed our motion to intervene, we expected that the DEA would, the DEA attorney would oppose it, and that is what happened. I think we had a chance to respond to that, and after that part of the process was finished, we expected that we would hear a decision from the judge quickly, and we thought it would probably neg be negative, but somehow, and Mr. Flannery says that in 50 years of practicing law, this has never happened to him. Oh, wow. They just conveniently forgot to send us their answer. It went to Dr. Bokoff's lawyer and presumably to the DEA, but they didn't send the answer to us. So after a certain point in time, Mr. Flannery said, we got to submit this motion again. And, and by the way, I'll say, by, well, we did, if you've answered, we didn't get it. He found out quickly that, oh, I'm sorry, we failed to send it to you. Here it is the answer which was a denial so that's very interesting by the way the same thing happened to me where I would miraculously not get documents that had been produced and I find it very odd how these similar tactics of delay and quote-unquote lost in the mail seem to appear over and over so you get this denial what happens from there what we decided to do was to file an appeal First, we filed a stay, a motion to stay the action, to get DEA to just stop the process while we submitted an appeal. They declined to do that. So within the requisite time period, which was, I think, 30 days, 
within 30 days of the decision. Mr. Flannery filed a motion to appeal with a federal in the federal court system at the level and in the court that is specified in rules that govern this stuff, which court has appellate authority if a party feels they have gotten a bad decision from an administrative court, like at least this one in DEA. And that court is the Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit Court. And that's where our So you took it federal? Yes. You went to the federal court? Yes. Okay, so that's where it's now. Any action or have you heard back in any capacity? We had two different deadlines for filing documents. The most recent deadline was March the 6th, this past Monday of last week, I think. That was for dispositive motions to be filed with the court, which I understand are motions to dispose of an issue, to throw it out. We did not have any such motion to file, but the DEA did file such a motion. And the next step, right now our attorney, Mr. Flannery, is in the process of responding to that dispositive motion from DEA. He gets a And that typically takes about a week. A week or 10 days, something like that, yes. Understood. Can we, the listeners, the public, ostensibly, do to help support your legal efforts? Can we file motions, provide letters of support? Um, Joe, you're asking me a question that I don't can't say I absolutely know the right answer to. We welcome any kind of support and visibility of this whole issue. I appreciate so much you asking to speak with me and having me on this podcast because it's just one way to help get the word out, and we appreciate it very much. I think ultimately what's going to have to happen, and this is not just for our our legal action, but to fix what's wrong in this country about opioid pain medications is that we have to find a way to change that narrative that you mentioned earlier because it's imbued every aspect of our culture. Certainly. Have media outlets reached out to you or any other representative in this case to inquire more about what you guys are doing? Because I think it's very unique that patients are overtly standing against the DEA given everything that you see in the media in terms of that pervasive narrative. Yes, we have had some contact and there have been some articles published and a podcast already with one more I think in the works from Vice News. Great. And there's one also, there's a outlet on the internet, on the web, called Pain News Network, and it is a source of information for pain patients, advocates, doctors, etc. And we've had a number of stories featured on there. I will say that one thing that attracted attention right away is one of the patients and his wife, he was very distraught. He'd been through this whole thing about two or three times before and had to go a very long time in a couple of occasions without any access to pain medications. This couple committed suicide about a week after Dr. Bachoff's visit from the DEA. I'm sorry to hear. It was hard. It was just by chance that this couple were friends of mine and my husband's. We had never actually met them in person, but we had talked and exchanged email and communicated many times. There happened to be a Vice News journalist who had a couple of years prior done a podcast with the patient, Danny Elliott from Georgia. I don't know how they got together in the first place, I don't remember, but he was, over the course of the years, he kept in touch with Danny and followed what was going on with Danny. 
and he was just very upset upon learning of Danny's death and the manner of his death and that his wife had chosen to commit suicide with him rather than go on living without him. And so he got engaged right away, attended the funeral, which was webcast, and we got to see. And he took, picked it up right then and started on his next article. He is now, I think, on another project, but I've recently been contacted by one of his affiliates, and she will be pursuing it further, and we expect more to be coming out from them. Perfect. And make sure that this podcast gets in front of them as well, because the more sources they have, the more comprehensive they can write the article. I certainly will. I certainly will. In the remaining time, I want to be able to connect other patients in similar situations, trying to protect their doctors, be able to get a hold of you so that the success you've had and the guidance you can provide can help them in their efforts. How can somebody get a hold of you and what's what's the best contact information? I would prefer to give my email address and I would request that people identify themselves as pain patients or advocates or family members who have viewed your podcast and are interested in getting more information. If they will do that, I won't promise I can get back to them the same day, but I will get back to them as quickly as I can. Our group has a name. We're called Families for Intractable Pain Relief, and we've existed for about 10 years. We had a webpage at one time, but unfortunately it was built on an older platform that was about to go down, and so we don't have a web website at this point in time. But we are a real group. We have corresponded with and shown up to speak at meetings of many federal agencies, state agencies. Most recently, we've been concentrating on the California Board of Medicine in regard to their pending update of their prescribing guidelines. So we are a real group, even though you can't find us on the internet right now. And my email address, is that something that you'll put somewhere for them or... I'll put it in the link below. And if you don't mind, in case somebody's listening to it audio while driving and they can't write it down, can you just list it out for people? Sure. It's my name. My first name followed by my last last name, Kristen Ogden, K-R-I-S-T-E-N-O-G-D-E-N at prodigy.net. That's P-R-O-D-I-G-Y. Perfect. Kristen, it's an amazing work what you're doing. It's unprecedented to see patient advocacy group support their physicians in this manner legally. I'm so proud of what you and your group are doing, and I'm so amazed with the success you've had, and I am rooting for you, and whatever we can do to help, I will do. Keep speaking out and encourage other doctors to keep speaking out. That's very important. we got to change the narrative, and we need doctors out there talking, and I know it's hard to do. Exactly. I understand why, but we need you. We do. Thank you so much, Kristen. Appreciate your time. Thanks again.